Wasting Your Life on Jesus, or a title, Wasting Your Life on Jesus. The passage which is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 1 to 11. Shall we just come before the Lord in prayer before going to the Word? Lord, your Word is a light unto our part. We just ask you, dear Lord, that you'll be amongst us and you will direct every thought, every word. Just ask, Lord, that you will just enable me to communicate to your people your message for today. We just ask you, dear Lord, that this message will not go and fall on empty ground, but it will fall on hearts and minds that can be restored, can be challenged, can be convicted. And Lord, it would enable us to grow closer to you, grow closer in obedience to you. And so, Lord, we just place everything into your hands and ask that you be glorified in every step and in every way. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. I'm sure we've all had this experience. You're seated at the table, ready to enjoy a wonderful meal together with family or friends. It's an occasion for celebration. Anticipation is high. The food and drink have been lovingly planned and prepared. The setting is perfectly conducive to great conversation and idle, and lots of laughter. If you're like me, you know, you always have something to talk about, and at the time also humor, so much, very much part of the occasion. Nobody has anywhere else to be the rest of the night. The dishes can wait. It's going to be an occasion to remember. But then, just as the celebration gets underway, somebody around the table, perhaps like me, says or does something that ruins the whole atmosphere. I'm sure you've all been there. Either you've all <laughs> observed it from other people or you yourself have been yeah, the actual individual who says something that is totally out of place and it just ruins and it just sets a bad tone for the rest of the evening. So this scene in Bethany where Lazarus, Mary and Martha resided, it set for a magnificent celebration. Jesus is in town. His first visit back since he raised Lazarus from the dead. The festival of Passover is less than a week away. Lazarus' family, probably still overwhelmed with gratitude, had decided to hold a banquet in Jesus' honor. I mean, that was quite customary and tradition for the, traditional for in those times. You know, you always commend any sort of um, good deed or any sort of um, act of generosity or any compassion by holding a big feast. I think some people still do it today. It still happens today in certain cultures. So there it is, you know, the, the Lazarus family had laid on this feast, most likely, you know, to actually commend Jesus for what he had done in bringing him back from the dead. So the family was overwhelmed with gratitude and this banquet was there to honour him. So we can only imagine that no expenses were spared you know, in enabling this occasion to be so sumptuous, so wonderful, so great. And so John tells us that at some point now during the meal, Mary, 
Lazarus' sister, gets up from her place and goes over to kneel down at Jesus' feet. Very unusual. But in some ways, it was customary in those days for people to lie. Or to just, you know, they didn't sit it up in chairs as we have today. Right? Sometimes it's very difficult, I know, that when you're hearing an account in the Bible, in a particular setting, you immediately somehow try to understand it in light of your own experience. But in fact, that was not how it was. They most likely sat you know, in a very reclining position. And so it was that in those days, Jesus would have been sat back you know, with pillars around where his head is towards the lower table and his feet out towards the edge. So it was quite easy for Mary to have access to his feet without permission or invitation. Mary just uh, on her own impetus goes over to Jesus and she takes out this bottle of very expensive perfume and anoints his feet by pouring the perfume over them. Later in the passage we learned that this one bottle of perfume is worth 300 denarii. Now put that into context. It would have been about one year's wage of a laborer. Translated to a day, it may be something to the equivalent of 20,000 bottle of Chanel number no. 5. A man, I mean, you um, ladies wonder if a gentleman was to offer you a 20,000 bottle of Chanel number no. 5, you'd say, wow. Right? So just imagine that. That's, what's, that's, that's about the equivalent value that, of that perfume that Mary had opened and poured on Jesus' feet. So in a matter of seconds, 20,000 pounds was running down Jesus' feet and onto the floor. Then we're told that Mary lets down her hair and begin wiping Jesus' feet dry, which seems hard to us. I'm sure you find it hard. Somebody comes in and starts, just let their hair down. Even at that time, just let her hair down and start wiping his feet um, with her hair. Now, that would seem very hard to us, but in a Jewish culture, that was not just hard, that was scandalous. Because no grown woman would ever let her hair down in public. No grown Jewish woman would ever let her hair down in public. In fact, the day a young girl or female got married in Jewish culture, she would put her hair up and from that time on, nobody beside her husband would see her hair let down. I, I, I work in um, Hackney, very close to the, in Stoke Newington, in that Stamford Hill, where there is a large residence of what you could say Orthodox Jews. And interesting, uh, several years ago, um, I, I, I spoke to a colleague of mine who uh, originally from Philadelphia. And um, I said to her, it's strange that when I'm around Stamford Hill, I noticed that nearly all the women, Jewish women, had more or less the same kind of hair, the same color hair. And she sort of um, smirked and said to me, no, 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 you're not looking at their hair. What is this actually a wig? I said, oh, I didn't realize I'd never even thought about it. She said, yes, their actual hair is hidden under that wig. That's why all of them seem to have that brown wig. And it all looks like they all said. So even to this day, Orthodox Jewish women do not show their hair in public. It's covered, it's, it, it's concealed. And so it was at that time that 
Jewish women had their hair covered. So for this woman, for Mary, to actually approach Jesus and let her hair down in public, that was seen as a public disgrace. Such, though, was the worth of Jesus to her. So, this is a story about how not to waste your life. It's also a story about motivation. What do we do and why do we do it for the Lord? The question, do we serve him for the satisfaction you get when you see results? Or is it satisfying for him to see what you do for him? Now, if we are only serving God, if we are serving Christ, so that it helps others, we might think that as, you know, in terms of our society values, as very laudable, very commendable. Somebody does something you know, on behalf of someone else, that is very laudable. However, if we're doing it in the name of God for others, that isn't quite sufficient for the Lord. Yes, it's right that we should be compassionate, caring, and considerate to others. But it's not the primary reason why we should do it. The primary reason we should be in service is for God himself. It is about serving him first and foremost. Not for our own gratification, not even for the assistance of others. Our primary reason is in order to honor him, to glorify him, to be obedient to him. So that should be our number one motive. And if you need an explanation, it's simply that serving Christ is above all worthy for everything you can do for him, and because you love him, and you want to please him, this is why he should take priority. Because after all, he gave himself fully for you and me on the cross. He held nothing back. And so when Mary came to Jesus and took out this very expensive bottle of perfume, let down her hair, she was showing an example of giving everything to Christ, not holding back on anything whatsoever. But at the same time, John also contrasts Mary's active devotion with Judas's self-centered focus and with it, the heaver plans of the chief priests, who now only wanted to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus whose resurrection was resulting in many believing in Jesus. Because it was almost in that time that the Jewish leaders, as we've heard over the weeks, the Jewish leaders primarily were after political control. It wasn't simply a matter of them obeying God and being there to represent God. Their primary motive was to control the people and to exploit the people for their own ends. Now this new person comes in who then challenges their value system, challenges their interests, poses a threat. So he had to be gotten rid of. And the raising of Lazarus just really makes it even much, much more difficult. 
for them because suddenly the people are doing what? Moving towards believing in Jesus. They're more interested. Because for a long time, what the religious leaders done, if you ever spend time studying the scripture and studying the, some of the background and the history, what they did, they complicated faith in God. They complicated the laws. They created laws, if you like, that God didn't give them authority. As some writers would say, some commentators would say, they created edges. In other words, right, they went beyond the written text. They went beyond what God had laid down. And the reason they did so, in my humble opinion, was in order to enable them to exploit the people. So, for instance, they had their own version of the Sabbath. They had their own version of how people should actually be cleansed. They had their own version of so many different aspects, which went beyond. And as Jesus said in one reference, they've made the law a burden unto the people. And the primary reason, as I said, wasn't in order to further God's kingdom and further God's will on earth. Their primary motive was to enable them to keep the people under this oppression, keep the people under this fear, to the point where the people would almost do their bidding without question and thereby left themselves very vulnerable to exploitation. So this man coming now with the truth, with the right way back to God, poses a massive threat. Does that remind you of some of what we see goes on in our world in terms of politics? That some things don't change under the sun, as Solomon says. And so there it was. So Jesus posed a real threat. Now going back to the story. This story about Mary is a story of selfless devotion to Jesus. And if somebody was to look at it just through human eyes, it says, oh, how could Mary have actually done right such a thing that left her wasting 20,000 pounds of perfume? But as I said earlier, a life that is spent on Jesus or anything that is spent on Jesus is never wasted. Only when we are focused on self, our own interests, that's then it becomes wasted. Now, in spite of his claim, Judas didn't know the value of caring for the poor. Yeah? That was just a total pretense. That was just, a, as we said, a red herring. After all, the question that could be asked of Judas, who was the poorest person in the world that night? Well, I tell you, the poorest person on earth was standing there in front of him. Here, Jesus, the holy son of God, divine for all eternity, the very creator of us all, had emptied himself, right, off his high place in the kingdom to become mere human like you and me in order to appear himself to die for us. So in terms of how we would say measure poverty, Jesus was at that time the most impoverished person on earth. To what he had actually came from, to what he had become, he was the most impoverished. So if Judas was really caring for the poor, he did not to be 
suggesting that Mary focused anywhere beyond Jesus. The Son of God was at that time the poorest person on the earth. The weight of sin of the world was now on his shoulders and in a matter of days would crush him. So dear, if he wanted to really care for the poor, he could say, Mary, yes, Jesus is the poorest person on earth. Now, when Mary anointed Jesus with the perfume, she was actually doing exactly what Jesus, Judas had suggested she should be doing. She was using it for the sake of the poor. Jesus' final words confirm this. You always have the poor with me, he says, but you do not always have me. Right now, you have me. So there, there it is, it comes together. You've got Jesus. You've got the most impoverished person. You I've got what it takes to serve somebody that is very impoverished. So that is a lesson for us as it was, a lesson for Judas and the others. Now, please understand, now that Jesus is not saying, as some over the years have claimed, that serving the poor in the world is not important. After all, we here every Tuesday, right, we have an outreach, we have a food bank, to offer those that are destitute, those who are in need. And that is a real-life example of serving those who are in need, those who are impoverished. I dare not go over it because I'm sure you've seen enough adverts, either on the TV, over the, heard over the radio, posters, even uh, mail, of the fact that there are so many children, and there are millions, who go to bed every night without a meal. I'm sure all of us here have food in our fridge. There are so many millions of people in this world who do not have a fridge, let alone food, to put in the fridge. And, but yet, it's quite often Christian-inspired organisations which are at the forefront are seeking to address This is a desperate situation. So, never could be placed on Jesus or placed on any word in scripture or on any Christian that somehow this is an instance where Christians do not care for the poor, do not care for the starving, do not care for the hungry. I'll challenge anybody, right? Look at the evidence. And the evidence doesn't just start... Yesterday, the evidence goes back over centuries. Just in this country alone, in the 19th century, poverty was widespread. Children, girls as young as eight, nine, were being sent out to sell their bodies just to keep bread on the table of their families. It was people like Lord Shaftesbury, George Muller, William Booth, who, yes, they went out with the Bible firmly in one hand, but they also went with compassion in the other hand. The politicians didn't have a clue. It was people motivated by the love of Christ who went out to attend to the need for the poor. And if you actually look at the historical background to the change of legislation which led to even our welfare state, it was not founded by, it was not started by 
political thinkers. It were Christians who actually started the lobbying, the protests, praying that these changes would be brought about and become statutes in Parliament that would provide a safety net against poverty. Just over near where I work, Hackney next door is Bethnal Green. And just over a century ago, the person who actually went out and mapped all the streets and identified where all the impoverished families lived was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And a BBC reporter, just under 10 years ago, went out along the same roof, the same path that William Booth had gone and found that there were still deep-seated um, pockets of poverty in that part of Tower Hamlets. So I refute anyone who would suggest that this passage is an example where the gospel is insensitive, indifferent to the needs of the poor. But Jesus would just put it into context. He was saying, at this time and in this moment, right, what matters more is him because, as I said, it's about him, right, on his way to the cross to pay the price for the sins of the old world. Furthermore, what Jesus was challenging in Judas is something I suspect he would also want to challenge in many of us. It is one thing for me to talk about how I have plans to serve the poor somewhere, someday. It's quite another thing for me to actually serve the poor person who is standing in front of me right here, right now. You know, one of the things I find sometimes a little bit um, disheartening is when we see these adverts on television of example of a child that is either impoverished or a child is in need. And... I'm sure, like me, you have an immediate emotional reaction. But as soon as the advert goes, what happened to that reaction? Does it lead me to do something about what I have seen, or does it just, well, okay, I've seen it, I've felt this way, right, let's move on. So often, many of us, we get bombarded, and we see these images, but all it does is just stir an emotion that is very transient, it just passes. And we just go back to our normality. We just go back to what we're doing. So it just has a very brief moment that it troubles our conscience and that's it. Nothing more than that. Something for us to think about. And so it is. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was Judas. He, uh, he seems to suggest that he was caring for the poor. We sometimes say, yes, one day I'm going to get around to doing A. One day, I'm going to go and I'm going to read these portions of the Bible. One day, I'm going to be saying these prayers for such and such. One day, I'm going to start visiting those people that perhaps in need, that God has placed in my heart. One day, I'm going to get this much more involved in church life. One day, I'm going to do such and such. I'm going to do evangelism. I'm not picking on you, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy it. Right, so we all say, you know, we all make plans. We all the way we deal with those kind of um, challenges is by somehow coming up with that one day, someday in the future, we're going to start doing them. But if you like me, and I'm sure many of you are, it's just what us saying to God, you know what? It's not a priority for me at, 
and I don't know when it will be a priority. I would suggest to you that the plans we have to serve and follow Jesus someday means very little to him. I've been planning to say you're going to serve Jesus next week, um, next, next month, next year, when, this, um, when these things are sorted, these other things, my own personal priorities, is of no value to him. If you recall, there was an instance where a man came to Jesus and says, okay, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, and then I'll come and follow you. What he was really saying was to Jesus, you know what? I need to secure my father's legacy. I need to secure whatever he's going to leave for me before I can come and follow you. And Jesus said to him, no, let the dead um, go and bury the dead. You come and follow me now, right? Jesus called us, right, for obedience, called us to follow him today, not tomorrow. You don't even know if you might live to see tomorrow. There are many people who will go out from church, go out from similar places this morning, and they will not see the end of the day, right? We can only do things in the present. We cannot do things in the future. So it's only today we can be of service to Christ, only in the present. It reminds us of what Jesus once says to his followers in Luke chapter 9. He says, deny yourselves, pick up your cross daily and come and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life will save it. So it is now, right? Jesus require, right, our response today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make plans. Of course. The way we are programmed, hard to prepare, right? One of the things that we as humans have a capacity over above any other living creature on the earth is that we can project our minds into the future. But let us not become imprisoned. Let us not become captive by it. In following Jesus, he calls us today, now, not tomorrow. And all that Jesus asks of us is to love him. Because love does not hold back. For those of you, if you've been married like me or you've been in love, do you say to the person, oh, you know what? Um, Maybe next week or week after, I'll think about what this love means, right? The love drives you to want to be to get that relationship moving now. It doesn't say, oh, right, you know, maybe a year's time, I'll think about it. No. More so, the love of God compels us to get that relationship building with Christ from today. Not next week, not next year. Love gives itself away. Every day, it gives itself away. Every day. There's something in our relationship with Christ that requires us right, to engage him, to engage his work. Love picks up its cross. It doesn't calculate. It just surrenders and sacrifices. And as I said, it does it today. Now, there are just ten points I'd like to just leave with you in regard to this passage.
Mary, if you like, took the family's inheritance and wasted it on Jesus. What are we prepared to waste on Jesus? Down through the centuries, there have been many fellow believers gifted in other ways. But yet, when the call of Christ came on their lives, what in sight of humanity was a great sort of era of judgment turned out not to be. I can think of a man like C.T. Studd, brilliant cricketer, double first from Cambridge University. Family left him an inheritance which was worth probably about four million pounds today. Would easily have gone on to become one of cricket's greats. Or could easily have gone on to become a multimillionaire of his time. But yet, he abandoned all of it due to the call of Christ to become a missionary in China. Many people were puzzled by it. So why would a man, you know, you know, gave up, give up so much to gain so little? But he says, no, no, no. Yeah? He says, when you're looking into eternity, what C.T. Studd says, when you start looking into eternity, right, everything in that this world can offer pale into insignificance. Are we also looking into eternity? Or are we just looking in the temporal? And there are many other accounts, many other similar accounts of people like C.T. Studd. Don't misunderstand. Whatever God has blessed you with, right, it is to be used to his glory. It is used to be enjoyed. It is used to bless others. If I use an example, have any of you heard of a man named Eric Little? Chariot Sapphire, seen the film? How many people have seen it? Just Byron? No one else? <laughs> wow. Right. Sit and watch it. Very interesting story. But Eric Little, at the time, was a use in both of his days. But because the 100 meters, the Olympic 100 meters final was scheduled for Sunday, he refused out of his own conviction to run on Sunday. So instead, his rival, I think a man named Harold Abrams, ran and won. However, Eric Little was also right, very versatile and he was able to also run the 400. And he ran in the 400 and I think he won a gold in the 400. And he continued in athleticism for several more years before he went on to become a missionary. But at one point, his sister said to him, Eric, God has called you to um, be a missionary, not to be an athlete. So Eric says, hold on, my dear sister. The same God that calls me to be a missionary also made my legs to run fast. So I'm going to actually do what he allows me to do with my legs and also prepare and plan to go a missionary. So he, he actually became an accomplished athlete, but also he went on to become a very effective missionary in China. So yes, God does bless us to use those gifts in those situations, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your neighborhood, etc. I'm not going to put this guilt and say to people, oh God, you should be doing more spiritual things. 
Right. When you are in Christ, everything you do should be spiritual, sacred. So when you go to work, as I do, right, that is also sacred. When you are rearing your children, your grandchildren, as I have now, it is also part of your sacred calling. When you are engaging with your neighbor, that is also part of your sacred calling. You might be asked to say, how is that possible? Well, simple. As Pastor Rob reminded us, yes, as believers, we won't be called to the great white throne judgment, but we will be called to give an account of all deeds done in the body. So if you have been a poor employee, right? Okay, you might get away with your boss here on earth, but you will not get away with the boss in heaven. You're going to have to give an account Right? Before Christ. Of why you was a poor employee. If I had been a poor employee, thank goodness I'm retiring in a couple of months, so I won't have that to worry about after January. But if you've been a poor employee, you're going to have to give an account right, to Christ. If you have been a neglectful parent, you will have to give an account because God gave you those children to your care and responsibility. If you have been a very disruptive neighbor, very, you're going to have to give an account. So everything we do as Christians according to our responsibilities and duties is part of our sacred calling. So be mindful of that. Moving on. Sorry, I just don't know how long I've got. <laughs> yeah, fine for time. Right. We can learn a number of lessons from Mary's devotion to Christ. Lesson one. Selfish devotion costs us financially. Do I treasure Jesus more than my money? Question. Now, pure nard, you know, which was what the perfume was made of, came from the Himalayan mountains in the far north of India. It had to be imported to Israel at great cost. We don't know where Mary got the 12-ounce jar of perfume. You can perhaps speculate and figure it out. But Mary's actions was costly. It meant giving out something that was of huge financial cost to herself. In accepting that offering, Jesus was actually accepting Mary's worship with her finances. No, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, give the money to the church so that, um, to show that you're worshiping. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. In this instance, when Mary was actually using that perfume, it was an act of worship of Christ. She was actually saying, that was of great value to me financially, Right? is something that is you are worthy of. And so, we can understand in the context of one of my favorite hymns. Some of you may know it. When I survey the wondrous cross, and there's one particular line, or one particular part of it, which says, Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So what part of us is Jesus not worthy of? As my former pastor, mentor, once said to us, the last thing that normally gets converted in a believer's life is their bank account. Or, as he was saying to the men, he said, it's your pockets. Yeah? It's the last thing that gets converted. But in this case, Mary held nothing back. So following Christ, devotion to Christ, will cost us financially. But if he bought us with his blood, he has bought us with his blood. We don't own everything. He has bought us completely. Every aspect of us now belongs to Christ. It's not one part belongs to us, one part belongs to him. Totally and completely, we were purchased by his blood for his kingdom's purposes. Probably most of us would have sold the perfume and given, maybe, you know, if um, our conscience allow, 10% to the Lord and pocketed the rest to spend on getting maybe a later BMW or Lamborghini, as um, the Chancellor was saying recently. But Mary gave it all because she knew that Jesus was worth it. So let me ask. Is your devotion to the Lord costing you financially? If others looked at how you spend your money, would they conclude that you must love Jesus a lot? Or do they see something else that you love more? So that's lesson one. Selfish devotion. Lesson two. Selfish devotion costs you socially. Do I treasure Jesus more than my pride? Matthew and Mark said that Mary anointed Jesus' head. But John says that she anointed his feet. There is no contradiction if you anointed both. Matthew and Mark mention Jesus' head because anointing the head signified kingship. Because remember, Jesus, Savior of the world, was also king. John mentioned her anointing Jesus' feet because it was a lowly task of a servant to wash a guest's feet. In the next chapter, John tells us how Jesus washed the disciples' feet as an act of great humility that we should follow. Mary was caught up with her devotion to Christ that she didn't stop to consider what others might think about her. Mary's action made the apostles uncomfortable, but Jesus sided with Mary. Yes, there she was, letting her hair down in public, pouring his perfume, washing his feet. People would have been, I can imagine, gossiping and, you know, sniggering maybe and saying, what? How can this woman so disgraceful be doing this in public, letting her hair down and so forth? But Mary wasn't bothered about the social stigma. She wasn't, it is, from the chap, from, from the passage, wasn't one bit concerned about what others were thinking about her. All she was focusing was in Christ and showing him, demonstrating to him that he is worthy of everything from her. So ask yourself, do I treasure Jesus more than my pride? Or am I more concerned about what others think about me? People might think I'm a religious fanatic, might think you're a religious fanatic. But what matters is what Jesus thinks about 
you and me and our devotion to him. I'm sure, yes, it comes. I'm sure if you've been, you've been on the receiving end. And it hurts. I, I, I will say yes. Sometimes when somebody says, yeah, you're, yeah, you're a Jesus freak. You're this, um, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're brainwashed. You're, you're, you're fanatical and so on. But behind it, we know who we serve is greater than right, these accusations. And Jesus did warn us. That if they persecute him, they're going to persecute us also. Even sometimes in your own families, let alone outside, even sometimes in your own families, you get these kind of attacks. Right? Satan is no discriminator of who he will use to attack the Christian. So yes, it comes with a cost. It comes with a social cost. Lesson three, selfish devotion costs criticism. Do I treasure Jesus more than my reputation? Judas led the attack, but the other disciples echoed his criticism. They were, it seems, more concerned about just criticizing and attacking Mary for what she was doing rather than seeing the deeper significance, the spiritual significance of what Mary was doing. So ask yourself, do you count your reputation as more important than being identified with Christ as Mary was? Jim Elliot, back in the early 1960s, was called to witness to tribes in Ecuador. And his parents, his Christian parents, asked him to consider whether his gifts could be better used serving the youth in America. But Jim replied with a scathing denunciation of how lukewarm the church was in America. He says, no, these people are not really interested, willing to serve Christ. Right? They're just more interested in using Christianity to make their lives as comfortable as possible. And as we know, Jim and four other missionaries went to South America and were murdered. But in a famous quote, Jim said, people said, some from his families and other Christians said, what a fool. But Jim had said at a previous time, he is no fool. Help me out, O'Brien. I'm Byron. Yeah, to gain which he cannot lose. Right, right. So again, he's looking at eternity. Right? The believer cannot lose what God has promised in eternity. So he was prepared to give up even his own life in order to gain what Christ had prepared for him. So he says, he's not a fool. Lesson four. Selfish dev- sorry, selfless devotion stems from personal love and gratitude. 
Although the text doesn't state it directly, Mary's action obviously stemmed from her love for Jesus and her gratitude for his raising her brother from the dead. Jesus loved Martha, Mary and Lazarus, as we can read in John chapter 11, verse 5. And they loved Jesus. Love for Christ should be the motive in all that we do for him. So everything we do should be motivated by love for Christ. Judas postured himself as being concerned for the poor, but even if he had given some of the money to the poor, he would not have been motivated by love for Christ. People can give great sums of money to the Lord's work, but their real motive may be that they want others to know how generous they are. I, I, I can remember years ago when I was a child, there was a lady who always used to make it a big <laughs> demonstration of what, that she was putting in. I mean, in my childhood, to be able to put a note into the um, offering plate yeah, was quite a lot of money, right? Yeah. Uh, this lady, she always made sure everybody. <laughs> and I, just, even that, I wasn't a believer, I said that kind of troubled me. Uh, right? Why would this lady make such a demonstration, a public demonstration of her um, showing right, that she was putting in a, a note? Because most of the folks could hold their four coins. <laughs> but she had to make it known that she was putting. So some people may be giving even to God's work, but their real motive. Right, is to gain a, a reputation, a social reputation. Even some Christian organizations cater to those by naming a building after a generous donor. I'm sure you've seen them. Or telling potential donors that they will have a plaque put on the wall letting everyone know that they donate this room. So uh, I'm not sure, Harriet, if there are any places. <laughs> it's just more desire to make sure we don't have plaques. <laughs> right, but it happens. But the Lord looks on the hidden motives of our hearts, not our outward actions. As watchman knee and says, when we give, when we do, has the Lord been satisfied? Do I do what I did because I love him and I wanted to please him? So we have seen that selfish devotion is costly. It tempts from love and gratitude to Jesus. Lesson five. Selfish devotion flows from knowing Jesus personally. Mary knew about the infinite worth of Jesus than even the apostles did at this point. Her personal knowledge of Jesus, gained by sitting at his feet, led her to this act of selfish devotion. If you, if you and me want to follow Mary's example of devotion to Christ, we have to, by example, be willing to metaphorically sit at his feet, listening to his words. Every time we encounter Mary in the gospel, she is sitting at Jesus' feet, first learning from him, then pouring out her sorrow to him, and now expressing her love and devotion to him. You won't love the Lord as you should unless you've spent time at his feet. That means spending consistent time in the word and in prayer. Mary didn't just think about, sorry, so that is lesson number five. So moving on quickly, lesson number six. Selfish devotion results in action. Mary didn't just think about this radical display of love, but then allow reason to prevail and not do it. Rather, she did it. 
Good intentions are nice, but it takes a good actions to produce results. This story highlights three results that flow from selfish devotion. One from Mary, one from Martha, and one from Lazarus. In Mary's account, when she had actually poured the perfume, you can imagine, poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet, the entire house was scented by the perfume. And even if you went past, maybe, the window, you could also smell the perfume. Can people smell the fragrance of Christ on us? That's the question. What do they smell? Do they smell the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does our home smell like that? Do others in church smell like that? Do people out on the street smell that fragrance of Christ on us? We're just moving on. Lesson number eight. Action results in service for Christ. Here we're looking at the simple statement in John 12 too. It says Martha was serving. Martha was serving, but she was... In, in the previous account of Martha, when Mary sat at Jesus' feet and she was doing the chores, she was complaining to Jesus that her sister wasn't helping her. But Jesus corrected her and says, no, Mary has chosen what is a priority, which is right to be in fellowship with Jesus, learning from him. But in this instance, it's interesting. There's no record... That Martha was complaining. There was a larger number of people gathered. But in this instance, it's, I would say Martha was perhaps more willing to serve in that practical capacity. So it seemed that she had actually learned from the previous time when Jesus visited them. Lessons nine. Lesson nine. Action results in witness for Christ. Here we're looking at Lazarus. The text tells us three things about him. First, Jesus had raised him from the dead. Second, he was reclined at the table in fellowship with the Lord who had raised him from the dead. And third, his resurrected life resulted in many coming to see him and believing in Jesus as a result. Some scholars would say that the reason why others came was out of curiosity. But John doesn't say that. He just says, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. In this, Lazarus is an example of our witness. Do we share the gospel where opportunities arise, as Lazarus did, even though it came with a threat from the religious leaders? And finally... We are told that if, yeah, sorry, you will totally waste your life if you spend it on yourself. Judas and the Jewish leaders who sought to kill both Jesus and Lazarus were acting out of selfish interest. Judas thought that more money would bring him more happiness. Isn't that a delusion of our modern age? People think more money, right? And money and all its material. Value will bring them more happiness, bring them more enjoyment, bring them more fulfillment. Not so. Not so. The Jewish leaders wanted to hang on to their power. 
But both parties wasted their lives because they spent it on themselves. They were so preoccupied with their whole self-interest. Seems a rather interesting contradiction that, yes, right, God requires us to value ourselves. But God doesn't require us to put ourselves at the center of our whole being. Right? And so it was. Both Judas and the Jewish leaders right, were wasting their life by being consumed by their whole ego, their whole self-centered approach to life. In conclusion, just want to share a story. At a pastor's conference, the story is told of a group of Wycliffe missionaries in South America. The director and his wife had been assigned to translate the Bible into one of the Indian tribal languages. This is a lengthy and tedious process before computers. It often would take 20 years. During the process, the translators were teaching the scriptures and seeing a new church emerging among the tribe. But as they came toward the end of the translation project, the tribal people were becoming more and more involved in selling their crops for the drug trade and less and less interested in the scriptures. When the translators finally finished a copy of the New Testament and scheduled a dedication service, not even one person that it was targeted at turned up. The missionary's wife became very angry and bitter. She said, I'd given 20 years of my life so that these people could have the scriptures. And yet when it was completed, they didn't even want it. But later, in repentance and reflection, she says, I'm just beginning to realize that we didn't do it primarily for the people, just as much as they needed the scripture. We did it primarily for God. So they concluded, this is the only thing that makes any sense in ministry. Doesn't matter how small and insignificant it might seem. Right? We do not do it for others primarily. We do not do it for the community. We do it primarily for Christ. The world may scorn us and reject our message. Other believers may criticize us and not appreciate what we're doing. But we're not wasting our lives if we spend them in self-left devotion to Christ. So if brethren... You want to see your life transformed. You want to understand what is God's purpose, what is God's will, what is purpose. Just do whatever he puts before you in total abandonment to him. doesn't matter what other people might think. doesn't matter whether or not you see results. Yes, we're so results-driven. You know, we, I, we work in a culture now where everything is very much, success is based about results. So, you know, this obsession with performance. It's like I'm just doing one final project at work, and I said to my colleague, you know, it's around Black History Month. I said, oh, no, no, young people are not going to be interested. So I says, hold on, let me stop for a moment, right? I'm not interested in the large numbers. Yes, we can put on an event where there is, yeah, songs where there is a lot of food and so on. No, looking to actually plant the seed. So if only five turn up, just run with the five. Right? The important thing is to get the message out. The important thing is not to get the results. So 
that people can say, oh yeah, your stats are up, etc. And so it is. Just let us be obedient. Let us do it diligently. For whatever we do for Christ, as my Sunday school teacher used to say, the little we do for Jesus is precious in his sight. So whatever he has called us to do, let us just do it diligently. Not worrying whether we see the outcome, we see the result, we see the full measure of what it is. Let's just do it for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Just pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to honor your name. We just want to give you thanks that you're able, you have shared your word, you have shared your insight, you're able to challenge us, but you do not challenge us and leave us to our own devices. You give us the power of your spirit and the sword of your word. We just ask in you, dear Lord, that everyone that was here today will be blessed. If there are those that are troubled, we just ask, Lord, that they will find comfort. Those that need reassurance, that you, the great counselor, will reassure them. We just ask in the Lord that you will take this word and plant it in our hearts and that during the course of the days and weeks it will remind us of how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much you value us. And Lord, none of us are too insig- are insignificant in your sight. All of us as a value, all of us as a purpose. And so, Lord, we just ask in you, Lord, that this word will continue to be a living reality in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.